Welcome to Statistically Insignificant, a completely apolitical podcast with slides about statistics and not at all politics. My name is Tess, my pronouns are she and they, and today I'll be your friendly local statistician. With me is Bart. Hi, Bart. Hey, how's it going? Um, my pronouns are he and him, and just since the last episode, I've started receiving checks from Peter Thiel, so I'm transitioning away from socialism, but keeping some of the socialist language, but now it's more in a conservative kind of direction we're going. <laughs> I'm sure. This episode is building a bit on what we talked about last time when we discussed summary statistics. This time, we'll be talking about how those get measured from a population, and in particular, what it means to have a biased sample. Surprisingly, this is less technical than the previous episode because we won't have to do a whole lot of computations. One of the examples we're going to use in this episode comes with a massive content warning for transphobia, particularly transmisogyny, discussion of sexual violence and abuse. I'll flag when I'm going to start talking about it, so if anybody in the audience needs to switch off then, they can do so. It will also be the mailbag segment for this episode because boy there's a lot to go through on that one. Last episode, we introduced some summary statistics for populations, but made no mention of how they would be measured. In an ideal world, you would be able to go out and measure everything in the population you're interested in, then have the true summary statistic for the whole lot at that point in time. In reality, you have finite time, resources, money, and not everyone is willing to talk to you, or you can't pull every item off a production line for quality control, count every animal in a geographic area, whatever. You have to take what we call a sample, some smaller part of the population you're interested in, and then use what you measure on the sample to estimate what's going on in the bigger population. Broadly, this is known as sampling theory in statistics. The hard part is getting a sample which gives you a reasonable estimate of the true population value, because you don't know the population value, if you did, you wouldn't need to do this, you don't actually know how close your estimate is. All you can really do is use the best practice for the situation you are in, based on what you do know, because that is likely to give you as good an estimate as you can get. To show what I mean by this, imagine we want the mean of a population which has true values, 1, 1, 3, 4, 5, 7, 10, and 17. So our population size, which is uh, n, if you've been following along with our notation, is 8. And the true mean is 1 plus 1 plus 3 plus 4 plus 5 plus 7 plus 10 plus 17, divided by 8, which is 6. Let's oh, say... No, back here. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, not arithmetic. <laughs> Let's say we have enough funding to select two things from the population to measure and all of them have an equal chance of being selected. If we get 1 and 3, our sample mean, the mean we calculate on the sample that we use to estimate the population mean, uh, would be 1 plus 3 divided by 2, which is 2. If we got 3 and 10, we would have 3 plus 10 divided by 2, which is 6.5. We're measuring a quarter of the population each time here, 2 of the 8, but we're still getting very different estimates. If we take 3 measurements, we could get 3, 10, and 17, which would give us a mean of 3 plus 10 plus 17 divided by 3, which is 10, and so on. What we're getting here is a particular form of error that comes from having a small section of the population rather than the whole lot. It's called sampling error 
because it comes from having a sample. It's also something that we can try to understand and minimize. Who or which objects you sample comes into play. Generally speaking, a researcher will know something about the population which can inform the sample selection process. Maybe there's a prior census or survey data and social theory, an understanding of the industrial process producing the objects, or knowledge of the geographical area. The other type of error that I should mention here is called measurement error. This comes from something in the process of measuring and recording data which makes it differ from the true value for whatever you're looking at. Might be an instrument problem, or an error in the measurement process itself. In my tree size research, the trees have their diameter estimated by putting a tape measure around the trunk at 1.3 meters off the ground. If the tape measure is a bit loose, not at the same height, maybe a bit of loose bark is wedged under it. All of these things can mean that the number is, that is recorded is different from the true diameter of the tree. Or maybe the person doing the data entry mistakenly added or changed a digit in the measurement. So 1.2 centimeters becomes 12 centimeters. To get a handle on measurement error, you need a really solid understanding of the measurement process. The next concept we need is bias. This term has a very particular meaning in stats. Specifically, it refers to a systematic difference between what you observe and the true value. Sampling bias, what we're really talking about when we say something has a biased sample, happens when the sample you get differs in a systematic way from the bigger population you are interested in or claiming to represent. Maybe your selection process systematically misses a whole group of people because you don't have access to them. Then whatever measurement you make may be biased if that group has a different value to the rest. Measurement bias, on the other hand, is a systematic difference between the individual measurements and the true values. This is pro typically a problem in the measurement process or instrument. If we go back to our tree diameter example, if you have a tape measure that's not being made properly, it may be consistently too big or consistently too small around every tree that it measures. So if you have a bias of five millimeters on every tree, that's still a measurement error, a measurement bias, but it's systematic across the population. So when you go to estimate your population values, that error carries over. There are a bunch of statistical theories which tell us how to reduce sampling error and sampling bias based on what we know about the population. Reducing sampling error is usually a matter of sample size, while reducing sampling bias is about taking your sample in such a way that it reflects known structures in the population. Both of these tend to run into problems with resources, but sample size can be particularly sensitive to that. It's really common in consulting to have a conversation with a client where they ask you what the sample size should be based on relevant information and a level of sampling error that they can accept. You tell them and then they go, oh shit, well actually here is the considerably smaller sample size we can actually afford. What can we do with this? <laughs> it's really, really common, particularly if you're doing anything that requires like a lot of experimental apparatus or uh, like test subjects. So people in a medical trial, for yeah, example. Of course, this assumes that the client came to you before they collected their data, which is not nearly as common as it should be. And uh, can I just spruik for a second to anyone in the audience who is considering talking to a statistician, do so first, do it before you collect your data, do it before you write your report or whatever else, because their 
best application is to guide the process of data collection, because then the analysis will flow from that. If you can possibly avoid it, don't come to a statistician after your paper has been rejected because it has problems. Those could have probably been solved at the start. Anyway, uh, I've had some um, very interesting examples where people have actually come and said, here is the revisions I got, or here's the criticism that I got from reviewers when I submitted my paper, what can I do? And you look at it and they have treated like measurements taken from a, from the same person, like they take a three different measurements from the one person, but treated them as if they were for three different people. <laughs> you can't do that. <laughs> no matter how much you want to, you can't do that. Anyway, we're going to talk about some principles of sampling, a couple of methods that get used to reduce sampling bias, and then look at some examples. The first principle, already mentioned, is that population structure matters. If there is a feature of groups in the population which does or may interact with what you're measuring, you should take your sample in such a way that you can investigate and represent that. This is generally called stratified sampling. So imagine you have a population of 2,000 broken up into three groups. In group A, there are 1,000 people. In group B, there are 200 people. And in group C, there are 800 people. You are taking a sample of 100. You can reflect this structure, this ABC grouping, by taking a sample from each group which reflects their size relative to the overall population. Group A is half the population, so you could take half your sample from group A. This would be 50 come from group A. Group B, you would take 10 as it's 10% of the, of the population. And from group C, you would take 40. This can run into difficulties if you have very small groups, because they may wind up with like one or two being a proportional sample. You want to avoid this if possible, because that means whatever estimate you get for that group, if you're just sampling one or two people from it, probably not going to be a, a statistically sound metric that you get out. You want to avoid this if you can, so you can modify the sample structure to have a minimum size from the small groups so they don't get missed. Like maybe you say, okay, I want to take 20 from B instead of 10, so you've got to get the extra 10 somewhere, maybe you get 45 from A, 35 from C. And this would give you a better estimate of what's going on in B. Yeah. You may also know that these groups have varying spread, which we talked a bit about last week. So this means that things there's more variety of measurements that you'll see within one group compared to within another. So if we go back here, let's say we're using a uh, variance metric. If we have in group A variance 10, in group B variance 8, and in group C variance 23, this is considerably larger. So we can make our sample proportional to the variance as well as to the like group size. I'm not going to go into details about that, but it is useful to know that you can incorporate that additional bit of information into sampling so that you can account for the probably higher error in group C because there's more variance. When you are setting up a systematic sample like this, where you know something about the population and use that knowledge to choose what you'll measure, you need what's called a sampling frame. This is a list of all the things you can go and measure from. If you think back to when we talked about employment statistics, that survey 
is based off of ABS's huge list of all the addresses in Australia that it considers. That's its sampling frame. It then makes a selection from that list based on a reasonable structure from what it understands about the population, and those are the addresses that it actually goes and talks to. If you're doing something in a geographical area, you might have a topographic map that you divide up into grid squares, and then you select some of those grid squares. The list of grid squares is your sampling frame. The population structure stuff we talked about goes on to inform how you choose from that list. If you don't know anything about the structure, you'll probably do what's called a simple random sample, where each thing on the list has the same probability of being selected. When you're doing this, you're probably going to wind up with something that's more or less proportional to the groups within it. Like if you took a simple random sample from this population, for example, Roughly half, by probability, probably going to wind up being from A. Roughly 10% probably going to wind up being from B. Roughly 40% from C. So you'll get something relatively close to that first sample we discussed, the 50, 10, 40. But you can't guarantee that. And particularly if you're dealing with small groups within a large population, you can't guarantee you'll get any of them at all if you do a simple random sample like that which is why you would have a proportional sample where within each group you take a certain number. Yes, provided you were testing for something that would specifically affect that group. Well, this is where you need a little bit of expertise. If you are able to set this up, you know something about other things going on in your population. You might have census data, for example, which you can use to inform how your selection process works. If you're going in blind with no other information, this may not be the way you go about it. Yeah, okay. When you're doing this, you also need to take into account the response rate, which is how many of the things you tried to measure actually got measured. You might try to survey 100 people, but 10 of them say no. So your response rate would be 90%, or 9 in 10. It is worth considering if you have a, a response, if you are, particularly if you're doing like social research, what goes into play in someone turning you down. Because it may well be that there's something in the survey that you're doing which is interacting with some group of people who are just going, no, I want nothing to do with that. Like, well, when we talked about the census, we had a uh, bit where we talked about a citizenship status question in the United States proposed for their census in 2020 that didn't actually go through. But if you include something like that, which is pretty obviously targeting uh, migrants, particularly undocumented migrants and they are alienated from completing your survey, then the non-response rate, the people who are missing, is biased. It's biased towards people who think that the state is going to use the information in the census to do violence towards them. Uh, it, it seems like even on a more innocuous level, if you're doing social research, it also, like, the contrarianness of the, pop, of the, the person that you're asking may not show up in the results because they're contrarian enough not to oh yeah i mean <laughs> not to do the survey. a really uh shall we say i would say it's common but let's say prominent example of that the last two years people who are covid skeptics aren't going to get tested for covid if you have a whole community of people who are let's say, conspiracy theory theorists about the existence of the virus and the existence of the pandemic who aren't going to get tested then your testing numbers, which is a survey in its own right, different kind of structure, aren't going to show up that wh- who in that population is infected or not. 
And because they are skeptics, they are less likely to protect themselves against the spread of the virus. So you may be missing a section of the population who have much higher infection rates than everybody else because they are unwilling to participate. Yes. If you don't have enough information to construct a sampling frame, which is pretty common, you'll probably use a convenience sample, which is where you collect as much data as you can from what is available to measure. This can mean that for a social survey, you advertise it as widely as possible across social media and take every response that meets the criteria for being in the population of interest. Say you're doing a survey of the experience of gender diverse people in Australia. You would filter out responses from other countries. You may also filter out responses from cis people if they are not the target population. Although you might be interested to see what cis people say about their experience of gender anyway. The COVID testing is also a convenient sample because, it's, as I said, it selects for people who are willing to go out and get tested. It selects for people who are showing symptoms. This is not a uniform testing across the entire population. It's not systematic. So there is probably some bias in the results. You can also do snowball sampling, where you use participants to recruit other people. This is particularly useful for marginalized communities who can otherwise be very difficult to access. So if you have somebody come along to be interviewed, and if they feel that you are you know, genuine enough, supportive enough, worth talking to, maybe they'll tell your friends in that same community and your friends will come along and talk to you. This has a bit of a problem, so does convenient sampling. There is a filtering process where those who can't see the survey or who aren't connected to the existing participants get missed. That can prove to be a systematic bias in the sense that if you're advertising on a particular social media platform, you're selecting for people who use that platform, which may be associated with some other structure in the population. Snowball sampling works through social networks. So if you have someone who's disconnected from the network you're accessing, they're unlikely to be observed. If the network structure itself is of interest, this may not be detrimental. But you do always need to ask, at least yourself, the question of who or what is missing. Much of the useful paranoia for this sort of thing isn't really stats. It's an expert in the field thinking very carefully about what they are trying to do. The statistician is mostly there to guide that process and to have an understanding of the impact that these choices have on measurement and estimation. We can't tell you what the population structure is. But we can tell you that certain structures will require you to change how you go about choosing a sample and structure that sample in such a way that it will give you the best results possible. All right, that's the conceptual stuff. Now it's example time. Our first is perhaps the most famous case of sampling bias and gets taught as a case study a lot. This comes from World War II, when the US military was looking to improve bomber plane safety and survival by changing how they were built. So this image is, uh, it's not actual data, it's kind of an idea of the sort of data that they would have seen. So the red dots here indicate um, bullet damage to a plane, to a bomber plane that has come back from some sort of uh, mission. And you can see in this that there's a, there's spaces where there are more bullet holes and there's spaces where there are fewer bullet holes or basically none. Already you can see in this, there are some parts of the planes that are more or less undamaged and some that are taking a lot of damage. So the data set was a record 
of where damage appeared on the planes that returned from the missions. What the military found was that damage to the engines and the cockpit was minimal, while damage to the wings and the tail was more substantial in the planes. In this case, you have a convenience sample. The planes that come back are the ones that you look at. There's a structural bias here though. You're looking at the planes that survived, the ones that made it, the planes that took damage which is survivable, and we call this survivorship bias as a result. A statistician by the name of Abraham Wald noticed that the military's conclusion that they should armour the places that they saw the most damage was backwards from the reality. What they needed to do was armour the places where the damage wasn't showing in their sample, the engines and the cockpit, because that's where the planes that didn't make it back were more likely to have been hit. If you make the reasonable assumption that on all the bullets that are flying around in one of these missions, chances are you'd have a pretty equal spread across the entire surface of the plane for actual damage that happens, right? So where the damage is missing is showing you what is not survivable. And to our audience, yes, we have just signed a contract with Know Your Meme. <laughs> our next example is more recent. Based on an article from the ABC titled, Stroke is a leading cause of death, but treatment trials often don't include enough women, which is published on the 23rd of October this year. What happens here is that stroke treatment trials are dominated by cis male participants. Then how those treatments affect cis women, trans and intersex people is not likely to be well understood. A similar thing has been in the news recently about cis women having very different manifestations of heart attack symptoms to cis men, but because how cis men experience heart attacks is the model for heart attack diagnosis schematics, cis women get missed. Trans women, other trans people, intersex people probably get missed as well. Some of the most common things that differ between the way that cis men get diagnosed with heart attacks and the way that cis women do, cis women are more likely to have severe nausea, whereas cis men have the, you know, the typical clutching at the chest because you have severe chest pain. And that can really mean the difference between life and death. Yes. Someday we'll do an episode just on medical testing to look more extensively at problems like this. It even goes so far that a lot of like, I can't remember what phase it is, phase two clinical trials where they use like animal models. It is extremely common for those animal model trials to only use male rats because female rats are too varied in their response to various medical treatments to provide reliable data. Yeah. Hormones, baby! <laughs> <laughs> is, there, is there evidence that it, uh, stroke affects uh, men differently to it affects women though? It's not entirely clear uh, and because this, this particular ABC article is looking at stroke treatment yeah. So this is more not so much about how you display signs of stroke as it is about the effectiveness of the treatment on different people. Yeah. Okay. On to our last example, and this is where the content warning for transphobia, sexual violence and abuse discussion kicks in. This is also going to be our mailbag segment for the episode, so if you don't want to listen to that, which I completely understand, we'll see you next time. I want to talk about a survey that claimed to investigate sexual coercion of and violence towards cis lesbians by trans women. The survey and the report are called Lesbians at Ground Zero, which is already pretty charged. I also want to talk about the BBC article which publicised this hate mongering despite it being an example of both massive sampling bias 
and biased question construction. The survey was done by a group calling itself Get the L Out. They um, are part of a group of groups, if you will, collection of groups, I guess would be the better way to put that, in the UK who are just rampant transphobes. They don't like being called transphobes, of course, because they recognise that bigotry is bad, they just don't recognise that what they're doing is bigotry. The basic premise of both the survey and the BBC article is that trans women are a unique and specific threat to the safety of cis lesbians, and I'm sorry, that this is because trans women are actually just men pretending to be women in order to abuse same-sex attracted cis women. Ugh. It's really screwed up. Mm. Yeah, it's like, it's extremely rancid transphobia. There's I hate to think about it. <laughs> yeah, it's not good. <laughs> there are three main angles that I'm going to criticize this from. How the sample was chosen, the questions that were asked, and how the results were reported. The survey was completed by 80 people who come from a convenience sample. The author, Angela C. Wilde, asked for participants through a number of social media groups and her own personal network. The social media groups are described as women-only and lesbian-only, which explicitly, for Wild, means those which exclude trans women on the grounds that they are men. This is not at all ambiguous. When she's talking about her methodology, she states that the only groups that passed that criteria of being women-only had to actively exclude trans women. Groups which are welcoming to trans women, or welcoming to trans people in general, or even just don't actively exclude them, are not part of this survey. What she's done is get a bunch of people who probably already agree with her premise that trans women are not women, and that trans women are intruding into the spaces of cis lesbians. Wilde claims that the survey captures the points of view and stories of the many until now silenced lesbians, which is interesting given if you've read the transphobic articles coming out of the UK these days, these people are extremely loud columnists in The Guardian and now apparently get platformed in the BBC too. This is not being silenced. The survey was originally intended to be of cis lesbians in the UK, but only 48% of the respondents were actually from the UK, the rest are international. Wilde does not make explicit in her report whether she included all 80 responses, but given the numbers, I would say that's what happened. She also uses the cop-out phrase that the survey does not claim to be a representative sample, which, I'm sorry, that isn't the slightest bit of an excuse for shitty methods, and especially does not cover your ass if the statistics are presented in a, such a way in media that it positions them as representative. It's very easy for research to go from does not claim to be representative to may not be representative to that bit just not being mentioned and instead only the claims that were made coming up. I mean, your average person in the street probably has never really heard about what a representative sample is. This uh, misconstrual of results is even easier when it is being used by people with an agenda. And these people have an agenda. We have a biased sample of people who are already likely to be opposed to treating trans women as women, many of whom are actively hostile to their inclusion in women-only and lesbian-only spaces. The great many cis lesbians who have no problem with trans women are just absent. Or at the very least, if they are present, then they are present as part of their uh, belonging to these communities that do exclude trans women. Also, while not directly related to the research in question, 
Get the L out is quite assertive in its complete erasure of trans men, who they consider to be, like, I guess, gender non-conforming women that have been coerced into transitioning because of sexist ideas about femininity. If you go and look at their website, there's a lot of very explicit and incredibly condescending bigotry against trans men. Non-binary people are just another product of trans ideology as far as this lot are concerned. Next up, what the survey asks. I have not been able to find an actual copy of the survey itself that wasn't published alongside the reports on the Get The L Out website. So I have to infer what was asked from the report about the findings. I may not be 100% correct, and I don't know the detailed structure of the questions. The report says that there were 30 questions about cis-lesbian experience divided into sections on respondent identity, their experience in LGBT groups and on lesbian dating sites, their experience interacting with, and I'm really sorry about this, men who identify as trans women as potential sexual partners. It's it's really, it's just relentless. Everything these people write is explicitly transphobic in that fashion. One of the questions appeared to be something like, how do you define lesbianism? Probably with a bunch of different checkbox answers. I don't know whether it was just fill in your own. Because again, don't have my hands on the survey. One person identified lesbianism as a self-identified woman who attra- is attracted to self-identified women. Everyone else said something along the lines of women exclusively attracted to women, which in the context of what is written here means cis women, even though that term is not included anywhere. One person does not already exclude trans women from lesbianism and womanhood. How big was the sample size? 80, did you say? 80, yeah. My God. I mean, you, you can do quite a lot with a reasonable selection of 80 people. And no, no, no. I wasn't. I wasn't criticizing the sample size particularly. It was more. Oh, how how many bigots there people. are? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, it's it's amazing how many bigots you can find if you go looking in spaces where they congregate, right? Yeah. In the section on community groups, fifty percent of the respondents said that they had been excluded from LGBT groups for making anti-trans statements, such as "just females have periods," which is another example of their denial of the existence of trans men or assertions that trans women are actually just men. Gee, I wonder why you get kicked out for that. I'm skipping over a lot of stuff. The statistic that I really want to talk about is that 56% of the respondents reported being pressured or coerced to accept a trans woman as a sexual partner. This is also what got reported in the BBC article as the really critical result from the survey. The problem with this is that, as described, this statistic does not differentiate between someone being told that their assertion that trans women are men and cannot be lesbians is transphobic, and physical intimidation during sexual violence. There is no differentiation here, and this is kind of the, the headline statistic that is touted around. Yes. So Wilde states that lesbians are routinely harassed for stating that their sexuality excludes, sorry again, males regardless of their gender identity. And she says that much of this happens online in direct reference to this statistic. So this 56% statistic is reported on as indicating that more than half of cis lesbians experience coercion and sexual violence from trans women. That conflation is a real problem. It presents criticism as violence and coercion, which really plays into the narrative that these transphobes like, but 
is a problem for anybody else or anybody trying to really understand what's going on here. Interestingly, when the report moves to talk about actual instances of sexual violence that the respondents report, the percentages go away. Instead, you get terms like many and several, which could mean like four people or 5% of the respondents. Likewise, they say that many of the experiences would classify as rape or sexual assault, though only one was named such by the respondent. They headline this 56% because when you actually go and look at the instances of physical violence, which is awful and shouldn't happen to anybody, there's far fewer of them and it doesn't look like such a huge problem, even among this biased sample. Let me be very clear here in that I am not claiming that no trans woman has ever done violence to a cis lesbian. Trans women are people, and unfortunately people do sexual violence. Rather, the issue here from a stats perspective, there are plenty others, is that this survey is presented as evidence that trans women are a specific and outsized threat of violence to cis lesbians, when what we're really looking at is a very small section of the cis lesbian community who are rampantly transphobic. Except for that one person who was like, nah, it's fine, really. <laughs> Shout out to her. A few instances of violence does not make a problem systemic. What is completely absent from this research, and from the BBC reporting on it, is how many cis lesbians experience sexual violence and coercion from other cis women. The violence that trans women experience is also never mentioned, although if I remember the statistics that I have seen correctly, trans women have a much higher rate of sexual violence in the general population. Or hell, what trans men experience is coercion and violence from these trans-denying cis lesbians trying to convince them that they're actually women who have made a mistake. That means that there is no way in this report, no way in this article, to compare the instance, the incidence rate of coercion and violence by trans women to anything else which would substantiate the claim that it is particularly noteworthy. They just don't ask that. It is assumed as an undercurrent because they never explicitly come out and say this, of course, because then you might get questions like, well, where's your evidence? They take it as written that this is a special case, that trans women are somehow necessarily more threatening to cis lesbians as a result of being trans, which I don't mean to go the Oxford English Dictionary says on anybody, but uh, transphobia. <laughs> it's called phobia for a reason, right? <laughs> no questions were asked in the survey about violence and coercion experienced at the hands of cis lesbians, as far as I can tell. As I said, don't have the questionnaire. Certainly it wasn't reported on in the findings. It's a very consistent trend in stuff written by these sorts of transphobes to pretend that cis women being violent against other cis women just doesn't happen. You can see this writ large in the BBC article, which prominently features one Lily Cade. Hello, you delightful people. Since time of recording, the BBC has removed Lily Cade's contribution to the article. In fact, it scrubbed all mention of her from it. They have said in their update to the article, November 4, we have updated this article, published last week, to remove a contribution from one individual in light of comments she has published on blog posts in recent days, which we have been able to verify. We acknowledge that an admission of inappropriate behaviour by the same contributor should have been included in the original article. This fails to acknowledge the extent of Lily Cade's behaviour. It does not name her. 
It does not refer to exactly what she did. The comments that she published were calling for a literal genocide of trans women. I wonder how long the rest of the article is going to be up. I suspect it's not going to be forever, but it still is there. And if you're wondering what I'm talking about when I mentioned this Lily Cade stuff, I printed a version of the article to file on the 26th of October, prior to it having that update. Anyway, do have fun, and back to the show. Cade is an American porn performer who is somewhat of an expert in cis women's violence against other cis women, given she is notorious within the lesbian porn industry for being a serial rapist and sexual assaulter. This is not just rumour or hearsay, she admitted to doing these things in 2017, and several other performers have taken down their videos of her as a result of the many people who have come forward about her violence. This feature of her life history is conspicuously absent from the whole segment of the BBC article that talks about her and to her. She alone is allegedly responsible for more sexual violence than gets reported in the findings of this entire survey of 80 people, including violence in women's bathrooms, incidentally. Just in case that talking point comes up, this isn't just whataboutism. It's a statistical point. If you're going to claim that trans women pose a huge and unique threat to cis lesbians, you need to have a comparison to the violence and coercion that cis women do. And you can't just erase that violence of coercion from cis women either, because the people who experience that are hurt by it too. I'm going to close this section with a quote from the BBC article. They actually went and talked to the Stonewall chief executive, Nancy Kelly. They derided what she said, but I think it's quite relevant, and she knows a hell of a lot more about this than I do. Sexuality is personal, and something which is unique to each of us. There is no right way to be a lesbian, and only we can know who we're attracted to. Nobody should ever be pressured into dating, or pressured into dating people they aren't attracted to. But, if you find that when dating, you're writing off entire groups of people, like people of colour, fat people, disabled people, or trans people, then it's worth considering how societal prejudice may have shaped your attractions. We know that prejudice is still common in the LGBT plus community, and it's important that we can talk about that openly and honestly. Yeah, they should put the tags on the BBC that say, like, state-sponsored media, like they do with RT and China Daily. <laughs> well, what's really scary about this, and about the BBC article in particular, is that these groups are getting a lot of traction with people like Boris Johnson, which is a bit scary. Uh, certainly, transphobia is on the rise in the UK. Uh, trans women are being particularly targeted for this, as you can tell by the producing or things like this, and the erasure of trans men, because they're considered not threatening, of course. It's a huge issue, and groups like Get the L Out, and uh, if you've never heard of it, the LGB Alliance, which explicitly excludes T from that, are really pushing to alienate and frequently do horrendous violence towards trans people in the UK. It's scary, and uh, if you're out there want to learn more about it, I suggest you go and listen to people like Abigail Thorne or Philosophy Tube, who talk about the experience of being a trans woman in the UK in far more awareness and knowledge than I have, being, you know, not from there and not a trans woman myself. If you, dear listener, have a statistic that you would like us to talk about, please send it to us at statisticallyinsignificantpod at protonmail.ch or hit us up on Twitter. Both are in the description. We also now have a Patreon. We have to pay hosting fees to SoundCloud and RSS, 
And uh, as I don't have an enormous income myself, being a grad student, I would like some help paying those fees. Uh, our Patreon link is in the description. It has a detailed breakdown of how that money will be spent. And it will be very, very great to have you on there, as we will have some bonus episodes up in the near future, and you get early episodes and other content as well. But thank you so much. I'm sorry it's been a bit thank of a downer. <laughs> yeah. Relentless transphobia will do that to you. Indeed. I'll talk to you next time. Speak to you then.